You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. Let me see if I... Let's see about the holding. There's no collection in there. I don't think I can help it. Is that bad in here? I know, it's from my fault. <laughs> Okay, good afternoon and welcome as we start today a new Chumash. We're going to be starting the Chumash of Shemos, the book of Exodus. Now that the Jewish people are in the land of Egypt, we've got to get them out of the land of Egypt. So, as our Torah reading today begins and gives us a little bit of an uh, overview, starts off with the Jewish people being in Egypt. Seventy Jews came down to Egypt and now as the Jewish people continue to prosper and grow, Pharaoh has to deal with the Jewish problem, as they call it. And therefore, as Pharaoh looks to deal with the Jewish problem, he looks to see how is he going to deal with the Jewish people. First thing is to be going to see and delve into a little deeper the pain and suffering that he afflicts upon the Jewish people to try to stymie their growth and to try to stop them from populating the land of Egypt as he is concerned that because of the Jewish people overcoming and taking over the land of Egypt, they will eventually... Uh, overpower the Egyptians, and therefore Pharaoh enacts terrible rules and laws to be able to oppress the Jewish people. And that's basically the gist of this week's Torah reading until we come to the end of the Torah reading that we're told over Moses, who was born also at the beginning of the Torah reading, is told by God to go tell Pharaoh to let the Jewish people go. So this week's Torah reading spans a time of about 200 years from the passing of Joseph all the way to to the exodus, to the beginning, if you want to call it, of the exodus of Egypt. So now let's get into the deeper part of what our Torah reading and what our class is about today. There's a fellow in Bnei Brak, in Israel. His name is Rabbi Chaim Zaid. He's a fellow who teaches a lot of Torah classes. And uh, recently he publicized an interesting video where he talks about a unique story, if you want to call it that. He was one time standing on the street in Bnei Brak, and he sees in front of him a girl who's standing there all confused and bewildered, doesn't look like she doesn't know what's going on, and she's completely lost. And he goes over to her and he says, what's the problem, what's going on? So she says, you know, I just got off the bus a block before, in the, uh, in the stop before, and what happened was I got off the bus, I got into the bottom of the bus to get my luggage. The driver didn't realize that I climbed inside to get my luggage, and all of a sudden, he starts moving, and the bus is moving, and meanwhile, I'm inside trying to get my luggage. While I'm stuck trying to get my luggage, my suitcase, which is under a bunch of other suitcases, and I start trying to see, I'm yelling, nobody's there to help me. But all of a sudden, I realize that in the same compartment, somebody else also got inside. And we're both stuck there with the compartment closed. We're stuck in the dark, and we're looking for our luggage. We don't know what's happening. And all of a sudden, the guy that got stuck in there is screaming, Yichud, Yichud, how can I be with another woman in one cabin together? <laughs> and I'm looking at her and saying, you're crazy, you're out of your mind? I need oxygen. And you're screaming that you're worried that you're in the same cabin with a woman. Finally, the next um, stop, I got off. We were able to get out and find, <laughs> our, our, um, find our suitcases. This rabbi looks at her and says, who is the guy? Who is the guy that was with you in the same cabin that you were getting so upset about? So she points, he said, that guy, he walks over, to the rabbi walks into him, walks over to the bacher, to the young boy, 
And he says, I don't understand you. You're nuts or something? You're sitting, in, you're locked in a, in a cabin. The bus is moving. What are, you, uh, uh, what are you screaming? You're in the dark. What are you wearing? You're screaming. He looks at the rabbi and he says, what do you mean? It's Yichud. I couldn't be together with a, with a woman and together in the cabin. It was uh, against Jewish law. According to Jewish law, a man and a woman that are not married are not allowed to be in the same apartment, same home, same compartment, same luggage compartment together. So there's a problem. <laughs> the rabbi looks at him and says, no, 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 no. This wasn't Yichud. This was your first date. Oh. Oh. He looks at him and he says, idea. he goes over to the young boy and he says, sure. give me your details. <laughs> mm-hmm. Give me your details. Tell me who you are. Walks over to the woman and tells the woman, here's the boy's details. Why don't you go meet with him? She says, you're crazy. You're such a lunatic. I'm going to go. She says, no, 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 no. He's not crazy. He's just a typical man. When he's in pain, he screams. He doesn't know what to scream. <laughs> he will be, and she tells him, you're lucky, he's only screaming. He's not hitting anybody, right? Exactly. At the end of the day, the rabbi finishes the story that they can both get married and they live happily ever after. <laughs> so while it's a very interesting story and it's a beautiful story and we know that the way people are intended and who they marry is already destined from heaven, why is it? That God made it in this unique way that they got to get locked in a cabin together, barely breathing for oxygen. <laughs> and that's the way they're going to meet each other. Why couldn't they just meet in a nice, beautiful, normal place the way everybody else does? With a, with a beautiful matchmaker and say, you were a nice person, you were a nice girl. Why don't you go on a date and they live happily ever after? Why do things have to be in a, such a wacky way? Mm-hmm. This story is not just a nice story, but it also depicts a lot about what life is all about. And the message that life teaches us that many times that in order to build something, you need to be able to knock down the old. Before we go into a new idea, before we have a new subject, a new project, the first thing we need to do is completely remove ourselves from the previous project. And this is not only talking about in this case, but in general in life, In any different thing in life, whenever something happens and we're going through a challenge or a difficulty in life, and we start to analyze and see what's going on here. And not always is it easy to be able to decipher through the different turbulent times that we may be going through. And every time we think that, why am I getting this punishment? What did I do wrong? Why am I having this? And we have to learn that, you know, even if you're locked in a cabin, it's not because you did something wrong. Maybe it's not a punishment at all. Maybe it's the opposite. Maybe the suffering that you think is suffering is actually a good event that's happening in your life. You may be meeting the person, the destiny of your life in a time where you think you're suffering. The pain may be actually the emptying of the vessel so you can eventually fill that vessel. The pain could be emptying the past in order to be able to have a better future. What does this mean? And to be able to understand this, this is a very nice theory, but let's understand it and let's analyze it through the lens of this week's Torah reading. And we're going to come across first two questions. Where Moshe himself has to God. Moshe comes to God after God tells him to go to tell Pharaoh to let the Jewish people go. And in fact, it's the conclusion of this week's Torah reading. Where Moshe comes to God and tells God, Why did you make it so difficult for these people? For what reason did you make this decree? Over here you have men, women, and children suffering under the oppression of Pharaoh. The worst of evils. 
the terrible painship and hardship that the Jewish people gone through Egypt over a hundred years. What did they do wrong? These people did nothing wrong. Moshe, in fact, comes to God with a legitimate question. He says, you know what, I read through the whole book of Genesis. I look back at the history of the human being. Any time somebody was punished for something was because of a sin they did. Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge. They were expelled from the Garden of Eden. Cain killed Abel. He was expelled from the humanity and the earth. The people of the flood, they were people that were delinquent and destructive, therefore they were destroyed. The people of Sodom, they were terrible people and therefore they were also delinquent, destructive and, and what they've done to people in their times and therefore their cities were destroyed. Go through whatever happened. The people of the, uh, the, people of the flood, the people of the building of the tower, wherever you go, everything was based on a certain event that they have done in life, and because of that, they had some pain and suffering. The brothers of Joseph, they sold Joseph down to Egypt, they had to go through some pain and suffering while they were in Egypt to be able to see it. To, to see it. But over here, you come to the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus begins with a terrible exile that the Jewish people are in, and you don't see anything wrong that the Jewish people did. Why should the Jewish people deserve what happened? What did they do wrong that they deserve to be oppressed, to be harped, harmed and suffering for over a hundred years. And therefore, Moses comes to God and says, Lama Hariusa, why are you making it so difficult for these people? What did they do wrong to deserve it? Second question, Moses comes to God, and he says this, where's the justification? Ever since I came to Pharaoh, things only got worse. He says, generally, when, things, when a person's in pain, so you, let's say take a person who goes through a surgery, there's a lot of pain and suffering, but eventually it eases after time. Over here, it's only getting worse. The Jewish people lived in Egypt for the first hundred years while Joseph and his brothers were still alive. Everything was fine and dandy. They had a beautiful time in Egypt, but the moment Joseph died, every single day things were getting worse. And therefore Moshe comes to God and says, ever since I came, things are getting worse. Why are things getting worse? It's supposed to be the opposite. It's supposed to be that the Jewish people or in general, whenever pain and suffering happens, it's very difficult, as we know, all beginnings are difficult, and from there, things are supposed to ease. And over here, it seems like it's only getting worse. As we can see, in the, in the Torah reading, and in the, this week's book, in the Torah reading of this week, as we know, the Jewish people were in the exodus of Egypt, or, or let's say in the slavery of Egypt, I should better say, after Yosef's passing, until Yosef's passing, everything was wonderful. They were in the highlight. They were considered the respected people in Egypt. They got everything they wanted. Even until Levi's passing, who was the last of the tribes to die, the Jewish people were doing good. But eventually, all of a sudden, first Pharaoh tells them that he has to kill every Jewish male. Then he starts taking all the Jewish children and killing them and putting them in some bricks and using them from bloodbath that he had with the Jewish children, the forced labor that he did to them, and so on. And over here, these two questions, is where Moshe comes along to God and says, what's going on here? It's interesting that those two questions are not just questions that Moshe had to God back then, but these questions are questions that we all have, even today in every day and age. Nachmanides writes in his introduction to the commentary of the book of Job, a very fascinating thing. He says, what is the one question which causes people to be antagonistic or agnostic in the eyes of God? What's the one question that the humans have which caused them to deny God's existence 
which causes them to rebel against God or to forfeit their faith in God? Is this exact question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why are, well, where is the justice? Where do I see righteousness? Why do I see people suffering? It is the one common question that every person that maybe people after the Holocaust threw their faith away or whatever it was. But Nachmanides already said that one of the questions that people ask always, and he says this in the introduction in the book of Job, because in the book of Job we see about many different calamities and atrocities that happened to Job, and one can ask the same exact question. And he says one of the questions that people can ask is what's the reason why we see this person is successful while maybe this person is not? What did this person do wrong that they deserve such punishment, such harsh decrees? Why? The second question is a question that we ask at all times. In every situation, in every level of history, we live today in a time. And this is the first question that was mentioned before by Nachmanides. Moses' first question, why are you being so bad to the Jewish people? What did they do wrong? The second question we ask today as well. We're living in a time where it seemingly is the ultimate dichotomy. We live in a time that there's probably never been before in history, where so many Jewish people have access, or not only Jewish people, but people have access to studying Torah. Like what we're doing right now. Right now we're studying Torah, and any person around the world, if they want, can log in and watch it. It goes on, and every person at any time in their own space can learn Torah. When before in history was Torah so accessible to the common folk? To any human being, with a click of a button, you can access the entire Torah. Never before. So many people studying Torah, never before, not since Mount Sinai, was so many Jews studying Torah. Never. Never before in history. You wanted to study Torah, you had to travel for days, for years, for hours. Over here, every person can study Torah at any time. At the same time, at the same time, we look around the world. Look how dark and putrid the world has become. With whatever's going on in the world, things that were never even brought up on a table five, fifty years ago, today is common talk, today is accepted. Things that were considered disgusting and typical to anything moral is today become normal. The world has become so corrupt and so dull and dumb to a certain type of behaviors that we don't even realize it's wrong. Not only that. Look at the great scholars. Unfortunately, the greatest of scholars, as time goes on, we're losing many of them. And we don't see much of them popping up yet. The great righteous people <coughs> of the past. Do we have scholars of like the Talmud, or of the Rishayim, of the Achrayim, of the people of the great authorities of Code of Jewish law? Where do we have that? Thing? So at the same time, we are delivering with a seemingly dichotomy, where on one side, we have access to everything, but on the other side, we're losing the quality of life. And seemingly, as time goes on, it only gets worse. It doesn't get better. The second question that Moses had, isn't the exile supposed to get easier? It's not supposed to get more harsh. So what's the answer to all this? And interestingly enough, back in the time of the Alta Rebbe, the first Chabad Rebbe, there was a great student of his named Rapil Paracher. He was called Rapilu Paracher because he came from the city of Parich. He was considered a unique scholarly individual to the extent that by age 13 he was already thorough and knowledgeable in all of the Talmud and its commentators. He was a person who delved into the great talks of the Kabbalah, wrote many different essays and books on Hasidism and Kabbalah, 
not only wrote many songs, he was a chassid of the Alter Rebbe, later on became a chassid of the Middle Rebbe, the second Chabad Rebbe, and later on also as well of the Tanakh Tzedek. And in one of his books that he wrote, which talks about the concept and the time of the destruction of the, of the Holy Temple, he discusses this idea, and this is what our answer and our class will be based on, on his discussion. And he says as follows. And the concept is what God was answering to Moses. That everything that God told Moses and everything that Moses complained was, was God told Moses, you're looking at the picture absolutely wrong. In fact, the way you're looking at it is the opposite. Meaning that everything you see in all your questions at the exile, they're actually not an exile. They're actually the path. It's the, it's the making of the redemption. Everything that you're seeing, which seemingly you're complaining about, they are actually the tools to bring about the ultimate redemption of the Jewish people. What does this mean? And let's go through it. And let's analyze it a little bit in depth. The book of Exodus, especially the Torah reading of Exodus, for many is called, and the Rebbe used to call it many times, the Torah reading of exile. If we look at the Torah reading from the beginning to the end, all talks about the decline of the Jewish people. From the beginning, it tells us about how the Jewish people come into Egypt and they were on their high. Joseph was the leader, but Joseph dies, and from there, boom, it's like automatically sharp decline, and the Jewish people go into total demise. Meaning, all of a sudden, you have the Jewish people are on their high, and they fall to the lowest level, they become slaves and suffering and pain that they go through. And every single day, they're complaining and understanding. And it says, they cry to God because of the pain and suffering they come through. The end of the Torah reading doesn't usually, usually the end always ends on a good note. And the end of this week's Torah reading doesn't end on a good note. The end of the Torah reading is God, Moses coming to God and saying, God, why are you making it so hard for them? In fact, the Medrash explains that if you look at the three main characters of her story, is Moses, Miriam, and Aaron. The two brothers and a sister. And if you look at their names, they actually describe the terrible decrees and the hardships that the Jewish people have. Miriam, which comes from the word bitter, sad, which sows on the hard work that the Jewish people, the men with slave labor that they were put through. Aaron comes from the word hirayon, like pregnant. The second stage that was set that every single Jewish mother had to give up their children or their children were taken away. And they were thrown into the Nile River, either the Nile River, or they were stuffed into concrete, or they were in the bloodbath of Pharaoh, but the children were taken away from their parents. Which is again symbolic of Aaron. And Moshe, who Moshe comes that he was drawn out of water, the next decree, where, where Pharaoh wanted to take all the Jewish children and throw them into the Nile River. One day, God comes to Moses and Aaron and tells them, go tell Pharaoh, and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. What does Pharaoh answer? You guys want a vacation? The very thought that you can think about a vacation means you're not working hard enough. Or else where would you have a vacation come into your mind? And therefore he says, I'm going to make it even more difficult. I'm going to make me work a little even harder. And therefore Moshe sees what's going on over here. Moshe cries out to God and says, I came to help the Jewish people. And because of me, they're suffering even more. Moshe couldn't tolerate it. 
And therefore he cries out to God and said, look, I told you I'm not the right guy. Ever since I came here, things are getting worse. And he cries out to God and said, why did you send me? Ever since I came here, things are only happening worse. You said that you're going to let the Jewish people go. And instead, what does Pharaoh do? He makes their labor even harder. What does God begin next week's Torah reading with? You just watch. You watch until now to the forefathers. I've only shown them the name of Kiel Shabbat. But to you, you will see something out of the ordinary. What was Moshe? Let's look at Moshe's argument to God. Moshe's argument to God, as we mentioned before, was Moshe tells God, I looked at the book of Genesis. Never before was there such a precedent in history. That people should be punished and hurt and suffering for no reason. What did they do wrong? And if you're saying it's because of Yishmael and Esau, they should also have been in Egypt. Why these Jewish people? What did they do wrong? His second argument was, as we mentioned earlier, why is it only getting worse? What's happening over here? Whether it's from a physical or spiritual perspective. Moses was telling them from a physical perspective, number one, it got worse that they're not even getting straw now. From a spiritual perspective, also, where do we see the strength of godliness? They're not longer going to believe in God because of what's happening. Interestingly enough, there are some commentaries explain that Moshe was so upset about it that he refused to go back to Pharaoh for three months. He refused to obey God for three months and say, this is not okay. Because if you look in the timeline of things, he came when the Jewish people were out collecting straw. So it was summertime, let's say about May. The miracle of the exodus of Egypt happened a year later, which was on the Nisan, again May. Twelve months, that means from the first time Moses came until the last time Moses left, until the Jewish people left Egypt. The plagues only took nine months because it was three weeks each plague. So we what about happened to the other three months? Some commentaries want to say Moshe was so frustrated with the fact that happened that he felt bad for what was going on and therefore for three months he said, I'm not going. Until he realized that God told him that he was going to see. But what does God tell him? What does God answer Moshe on his response on his two questions? God answers him as follows. Now you will see what I'll do for Pharaoh. What is God telling him? Beforehand you were unable to understand it. Only now after you see the suffering, after you see the terrible decrees that they went through, you will see what the Jewish people have gone through. Only now can the new light come. Only now will you be able to appreciate all the things that are happening. And therefore, now begins next week's Torah, where God tells him, to this level even Abraham couldn't reach. To this level Isaac couldn't reach. Jacob couldn't reach. Only the Jewish people who have gone through the suffering they will be able to see this beautiful light. What does it mean now? Even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob couldn't do it. Because one can ask a very interesting question. Seemingly, what were the Jewish people told that they're going to have to go through the exile of Egypt? The first time God met Abraham, and he saw Abraham's commitment, what did God make with him? It was called the covenant. That God told him that your children are going to be enslaved for 400 years. So it seems a little odd. First of all, imagine God says, you know, Abraham, you're lucky. You're special. You are the one that is chosen. And because of that, I'm going to put your kids in prison. I'm going to put them in slavery for 400 years. That doesn't really like work out. If I'm special, why am I kids being enslaved for 400 years? 
Not only that, take it a step further. Abraham was the protector of everybody. He was ready to protect the people of Sodom for the air atrocities, what they did. Over here, God tells him, your children are going to be enslaved for 400 years. Not a word. Okay, fine, no problem. You got no problem with that? He doesn't see anything wrong with that. Shouldn't he stand up and say, God, but why? What did you do wrong? But God says, no. Because I love you so much, therefore they're going to be in prison for 400 years. What, what's, the, what, what's the rationale? He was removed from it. He didn't see it yet. He, he did see it. God told it to him. He told, but he, but he saw told a lot. He saw Sodom and Gomorrah. You know what I mean? But, but if somebody tells you, because I love you so much, I'm going to put your children in prison. Does that make sense to you? But he, no, it doesn't. But he didn't see it, actually. Whether I see it or not, but, the the but if the rationale itself, I should have a problem with. So what's the answer? And the answer is because to understand this source and the essence of what the exile of Egypt was all about. And in order to know what the exile of Egypt was all about is to look at how the Torah, or how Moses himself, describes the exile of Egypt. Three times in the Torah, once in the Torah and once in the prophets, does the terminology say as follows. And I've taken you out of the melting pot of Egypt. So you should be a nation for God. In the book of Kings, God tells us, you and your nation, who I took out of Egypt from the melting pot. Jeremiah tells it, he says, I took you out of the place of Egypt, which was a melting pot. What is Egypt? Egypt was a refinery. Egypt was a place which was a melting pot. What is a melting pot? A melting pot is that if you want to be able to get the best out of the metals that you have, you get to melt it, you got to refine it, and you got to take all the schmutz should be taken away to the side, so you can get the best out of it. If you're going to take the actual metal, the raw metal, the way you got it out of the ground, nobody's going to appreciate that gold that you have. It could be the most beautiful platinum, but if it's not melted, refined, and, and roughed up a little bit, and polished, by roughing it up and scraping it and everything else, it's going to be nothing worth. Not only that, can you wear a big box of platinum? You have to take it, you have to melt it, you have to bend it, you have to shape it, you have to form it, you have to use the pliers and all the other tools that are needed and you're going to be able to bend it and all, until finally you can have this beautiful jewelry that the person can wear. The same thing is also with the Jewish people. The Jewish people were about to enter a moment, the most dramatic period in the creation of the universe. They were about to become the chosen nation. They were about to become the holiest people, different than everybody else in the world. When we talk about the different elements that God created in the universe, there's inanimate objects, there's vegetation, there's animals, and there's humans. And then within humans, there's even a higher level, which is the Jew. The Jew is something which is higher than humans because it, can have, it has a part of God in them. It has a relationship with God. A Jew has the ability to think, comprehend, and be a part of God. But how is that possible? How in nature is it possible that a human selfish being, a materialistic individual, should have the ability to have and comprehend and to attach themselves to something which is absolute spiritual? That they have to go through a multiple. Because of that, they have to go through a refinery. They have to go through something which is totally going to break them, subdue them, and remove from them any conscious being that they have in themselves. Absolute slavery. 
Slavery, which is seemingly going to diminish the individual to the lowest level. They're going to be equal to the lowest common denominator. They have no super, no power over themselves. Seemingly totally destroying any self-confidence or anything that they had within themselves. Only then can the Jew be implanted. Only then can you give the individual absolute spirituality. Because the way they were as a materialistic individual, they wouldn't be able to connect to such a supreme level of godliness. And therefore, as the Alter Rebbe explains in Hasidism in the Torah, or he says, the same way when a melting pot, when this, the refinery removes all the schmutz from the gold, and when it melts it, you get this beautiful metal, you're able to have this most beautiful jewelry, so too, Egypt was that refinery for the souls of the Jewish people, preparing them for the giving of the Torah, to remove all the bad, the substance, that stuck with them from beforehand, that they should be able to be clear and be able to be refined for the giving of the Torah. What does this mean? Why does this happen? Why is it that the decree of Egypt, why then is it that Jacob was so quiet? Why is it that as long as the exile went on, it was getting worse and worse and was getting darker? Why is it that God gives them the whole explanation and says, your forefathers didn't know about it, but only you're going to know about it? Why was the need for it? What's the need for it? And the Talmud says something in a very interesting story. The Talmud tells us a story in the tract that above the Metziah about a great scholar by the name of Reb Zeyra. Reb Zeyra, he was leaving from the Mount Babylonia and he was going to move to make Aliyah. He was moving to Eretz Yisrael, moving to the land of Israel, changing Yeshivas. Now any person that looks at a Babylonian Talmud and a, a Israeli, a Talmud Yerushalmi, Jerusalem Talmud, will see a major difference. One is going through a lot of questions and answers until they come to the final decision. The Jerusalem Talmud is clear-cut question and answers. The Talmud tells us that Reb Zeyrit fasted a hundred fasts, that he should forget the way of learning of the Babylonian way. And why? He says, because I cannot take the method, the methodology, of the way the Babylonians studied the Talmud and move it on how I would be in uh, the land of Israel. Why? Because one was all about questions and answers, while the Jerusalem Talmud was more concise. And the question is, why would he do that? How is it possible the Jew spends 50, 60 years learning and he says he prays for a thousand years to forget what he learned? Why can't he just have both? He'll have the Babylonian way and the Jerusalem way. What's wrong? On the contrary, he'll be more of a complete individual who's able to understand the Talmud from both perspectives. Mm-hmm. Why did he do this? And this is one of the things that we see about how God made the human condition. The brain is a work in progress. And the brain is always constantly thinking. Have you ever noticed when you come up with the best ideas? Is usually when you're not thinking about anything else in the shower, or when you can't tell anybody what the idea is. Why at those moments? Because at that moment, so to speak, your brain is free. It's not thinking of anything. While your brain is always thinking, you as an individual, every single one of us, have trained ourselves to think in a certain box. As much as we want to think that we think out of the box, we all created our own box of how we think. And everything we see and visualize and think about and comprehend is within that purview of how we imagine things. In order for us to think out of the box, we have to be in a time where we're not, we're so to speak, free thinkers. 
We're not allowing ourselves to, to be limited to the box that we created. Therefore, the same idea is also when it comes to the Talmud is telling us. The Talmud is telling us that Reb Zera conditioned his brain to think like a Babylonian. To think with a question-answer analytical, as we would call today critical thinking. In order for him to be able to study and fully comprehend and immerse himself the way he should be in the Jerusalem style, he had to completely discard, forget everything he learned previously. You can't work on both modalities. Either this one, if you're really into what you're doing, you can't work in absolute both modalities. It's either you're in the analytical or you're the concise. And therefore he prayed to be able to get rid of the previous way in order for him to grasp and understand the new way of thinking. This is interesting that this is already a method in many different entrepreneurs. And even I think Google has this concept that they give their workers 20% of their time that they officially don't have to work on any project per se. That they're just roaming, they're free thinking, that they can just think out of the box like this, they can come up with new ideas. Because if you're always thinking about the same idea, you're just going to stay in the same idea. Yes, it will evolve to a certain extent, but it will always be based on the same idea. If you want to come up with a new, complete new idea, you have to be able to drop whatever you were thinking about before and come along with a new idea as well. Very few people are willing to let go of what they previously taught to be able to embrace something new. Why? Because it's very difficult. When a person lets go of everything, you're leaving yourself in a certain vagueness that you don't know what's going to happen next. You're allowing, you're making yourself um, vulnerable to whatever happens next. Nobody wants to be vulnerable. Everybody wants to be able to be in control of their emotions and their, and their intellect. And because we're always, so to speak, so tight to be able to be in control of it, it doesn't allow us to think of something else. The only way we're able to think about something else is to remove ourselves from the previous thing, completely make ourselves, so to speak, non-existent, Whereas they say, make yourself an empty cup, like this, you'll be able to fill your cup. As long as your cup is full, you're not going to be able to empty it. You're not going to be able to take anything else in it. And this is the same idea when we talk about, where Zera had to completely black out everything that he studied before. Because the moment he has anything of what he studied before, in any type of methodology or any type of learning, he's always going to compare and contrast, instead of accepting and being told what, you're, what he's being said. And therefore, what happens is, the previous methodology can not only distract him from what he's learning, but also will pervert or ruin, or ruin anything new that he learns. Because it will all be based on a previous intuition, instead of learning what he's being told. As you can see, if you come into a class with a certain perspective, with a certain idea, you're not going to allow yourself to be able to learn the new idea, because since you say, one second, but I learned this before. So you have to, so to speak, discard what you learned and be ready and make yourself vulnerable to be able to accept what you're about to learn. An interesting thing, just to talk about a, a real case scenario that happened where people were refusing to accept because since we allow ourselves to be boxed in. In the, um, the story about 180 years ago in Eastern Europe, there was a terrible uh, pandemic that children were dying right a few moments after they were born. And it was causing, like a third of any children that were being born were just dying right away. There was a doctor at the time who was an OBGYN by the name of Philip uh, Zamlewis, and he was a Jewish doctor. 
who did some research into why this was happening, and he realized that the students, the residents who were coming into the hospital that were working, they were coming straight from the lab where they were dealing with cadavers, and they would come straight from the cadavers to be able to help with the birthing. And they would come, not wash their hands in between, because those days the concept of hygiene was not yet, and they would come and they would be bringing the... Um, whatever it was, the, 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 the problems, or whatever they had because of the, uh, the, the sweat or the, or the infections and the diseases that were on those dead people when they were dealing with these children. Now, these children are born with no immune system. So the moment that they're born, and if you expose them to any type of these diseases that these cadavers had, it was killing these children. He said, and he came up with the idea, which today is normal practice in any household, is that before any person touches any patient, they have to wash their hands with soap to remove any type of infections before them. They looked at them, you're crazy. What are you talking about? There's disease over there and we're in a different building. What does it have to do? And nobody listened to him. To the extent that he went depressed and became crazy, they had to lock him up in a psychiatric home. And he was always screaming, you're killing the children, you're killing the children. And, they had to, and he got into a fight with one of the people in the psychiatric home and he died. Oh my God. But today, normal canon practice is you wash your hands. Something that he believed that was true, but why didn't anybody listen to him? Because, well, we've been doing it for this way for a hundred years. What do you mean we're going to go change? Until they realize. So we see that the concept, in order to accept something from somebody else, or in order to accept the new idea, the most revolutionary, even elementary idea, even as elementary as it may be as washing your hands, the only way you're going to accept it if you have to, so to speak, stop, mm -hmm. dismiss everything you know until now, and start from scratch. And that's the only way you will come to understand and appreciate new ideas. We see a very similar thing that happened with the Prophet Daniel. The Prophet Daniel, in the, in the book of Daniel, it tells us about a prophecy or a dream that Nebuchadnezzar, the king at the time, had. And in the prophecy of Daniel, he says, I became dumbfounded for a moment. All my thoughts were mixing me up, and I had to stop. And the king tells him, now my dream should not disturb you. What's the story? Nebuchadnezzar saw in a dream, a very famous dream that shook him to the core. He saw this massive statue that its head was of gold, his hands were of silver, his body was of armor, of copper, and his legs were made out of pottery. All of a sudden, a rock was thrown at this big statue, and all of a sudden, it destroyed the entire statue. The king was disturbed by the stream. He woke up in the morning, but he tried remembering the dream and telling it to the people. Nobody knew what it was. Finally, he called Daniel, the prophet. And Daniel, by praying to God, was able to find out what the dream and its interpretation was. And all of a sudden, the first tells us that Daniel, for that moment, became dumbfound. And all his thoughts came to a stop. What is the telling us? Daniel wanted to tell the king what the interpretation of the dream was. But in order for Daniel to tell the king the interpretation, he had to close everything he had in his mind until down. He had to be dumbfounded. He had to stop, put a block, and only then was he able to concentrate to be able to say the dream. In order for one to be able to have a new light, a new aura, a new idea, we need to put a stop to the other ideas in order for us to appreciate the new idea. In order for us to be able to have new concepts, new ideas, we cannot only have things vaguely in the back of our mind, we have to totally discard them in order to be able to appreciate it. Hasidism explains this is not only unique to the individual, to the human being, 
But if you look at anything that God created in the world, whether it's in vegetation or even in animals, every single thing, in order for it to have a drastic change, the previous element of it has to totally disappear. Take for example, you have a fruit tree, you have wheat, anything that grows, how does it grow? You put a seedling in the ground. But in order for that tree to come about, the seedling has to completely rot in the ground, dissolve, and only once the seedling dissolves, can you have a beautiful tree. If the seedling would stay the way it is, you won't have nothing grow from it. You need the seedling to totally disintegrate, disintegrate in the ground, and only then can you have this beautiful vegetation that comes from it. The same thing is also a chicken. You have the egg of the chick, the chick has to crack open, you see only the yolk, and only you see nothing of it. And then you see the chicken come forth. The same idea in everything that happens in life. And the reason of this is, and the Rebbe explains the concept. Because in this world, there are two ways of things that come to in creation. In Hasidic terminology in Kabbalah, it's called yesh 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 ma'ani. Ex nihilo, or something from something. If I take a piece of wood and make a table out of it, I didn't create anything. I merely changed the form of the piece of wood. Until now it's a flat piece of wood, and now I put legs on it. So it became a table. Well, and if I put a back to it, it'll become a chair. If I put it a little higher, it'll become a counter. If I put doors on it, it'll become a bookcase. But did I change the wood? No, I merely changed its form, its look. Ex nihilo means I'm creating something from nothing. I'm creating a tree from a seedling. The seedling has to completely disintegrate to be able to make the tree because the tree and the seedling are incomparable. Have no relationship. The egg yolk to the chicken are incomparable, are ex nihilo, and because of that, only through the egg, so to speak, rotting, destroying itself, can I be able to come to something greater. So now that we spoke about the creation, the way it is in this world, let's talk about it, the same idea from an individual, the way it comes to an individual, the way God comes down to this world on us. At every moment in this world, we are getting pleasure, we are getting God's energy. And as God's energy is great and wonderful, it gets what we're able to tolerate. It gets what we're used to. And then we are exposed to what we ourselves allow ourselves to be exposed to. But what happens for when a moment God wants to give us something greater than what we're able to handle? Something more, something more than just the norm. God wants to give us a greater light, a greater energy, a greater gift. That's something that we're not accustomed to until now. The only way that can happen is if that there has to be some type of removing of who we are. Some type of cleansing. Because as we are, the way we are shaped, the way we are, our psyche is, we will not be able to tolerate something so great. So therefore we have to go through some sort of challenge, some sort of difficulty, if you want to call it, in order for us to be able to remove, to be refined, to be able to have that ability to create something which is beyond ourselves. But what happens during that difficulty? What happens during that time while we're being refined? While we're being refined, we're crying out to God, God, where are you? Where did you leave me? Where did you go? Why am I all alone? It's dark, it's bleak, I don't know where to go. I'm suffering, I'm in pain. But what's the pain? The pain is the refinement. The pain is the melting pot. The pain is that you're going through that God is giving you is because that you should be able to have a greater light that's going to come because of it. 
Reb Hillel in his discourse explains, gives a given example. A teacher giving a class. The students are having a beautiful relationship with the teacher, they're learning, they're discussing back and forth as they're going back. And there's a discussion. But then all of a sudden the teacher has a, an idea. He wants to tell the student something which is beyond the teacher, the student's scope of, of, of learning. So all of a sudden this teacher stops. And he doesn't teach the class. He leaves the class for a moment. Why? Because it's so great that he has to allow the student to be alone for a moment and to start thinking on their own. To remove himself from the student that he should be able to give the student the opportunity to think about where are they, what they're doing. But then the student looks at the teacher and sees the teacher is lost in another world, is thinking about something greater, something beyond them. And he says, wow, I know now that the teacher has something to tell me. I'm not ready for it yet. So let me work to be able to get there. And he therefore he removes all his previous preconceived notions and says, okay, now the teacher can tell him something new. Because as long as the student has any preconceived notions, the student will not be able to tolerate what the teacher's telling them. Because it's a whole different plateau, a whole different level. This is exactly what God's telling Moshe. In next week's Torah reading, when God comes to Moshe and says, Atosira, now you will come to understand. What does it mean now? Only after you saw the complaint. Only after you come and tell me. Why did I, why was I so difficult on the Jewish people? You recognize the darkness. You came to appreciate the refining of the melting pot. Can you now see the beautiful jewelry that comes out? Now you will finally appreciate what's going to happen, the great light that will come because of this darkness. The darkness itself that you see in Egypt is not merely Egypt. It's not merely slavery, the oppression. It's a refining, it's a tool to be able to reach a level of redemption that they will not be able to get without it. This great darkness that you see, this great difficulty and challenge that the Jewish people are going through, it's a challenge, yes. It's oppression, yes. But it's refining. It's going through that method that they should be able to reach a light that they will not be able to get even before it. Rabbi Hill continues to say, the same is true in our life. Every single day, we see the darkness of this exile getting worse and worse. Every single day the darkness looks like there's no end to it. The challenges become more difficult. The oppression against spirituality, godliness, seems like it's coming every single day stronger. This is because we are getting closer to the light. Like the same way the darkness of the night, the darker it is, means the closer it is to the light coming in the morning. When is the darkest time of the night? Right before the light comes, right before sunrise. The same idea, he says, the same idea is in life. This is how we look at life and we now put a new lens, a new glasses to be able to appreciate the different things in life. When we go through life, there are many different challenges and difficulties and times that we cry out and say, God, why is this happening to me? Why is this difficulty going on? And in essence, what is this really happening? God is making us vulnerable that we should be able to appreciate the greater light that comes because of it. Think about it. The greatest time of a bride and groom is when they get married. And what do we do under the chuppah? We break the glass. And what do we say when we break the glass? We say mazel tov. You just broke something. Why are you saying mazel tov? It's because we're teaching the bride and groom as they begin their life. That this is exactly when the good luck comes. When you see a brokenness. When you see seemingly 
a desolate time. You see a time where it looks empty, they're challenging, it's vague, there's nothing there. That's exactly when the great light is going to shine. It is the distance that makes you, sometimes brings you even closer than you had before. It is the fact that you see within the difficulties in life that these difficulties are only getting you. It's the tunnel that reaches you to the other side to see the greater light. A very famous story that I always tell every Pesach about the very famous analogy that Rabbi Nachman of Breslau gives. And there's a story of the murder about the two guests, the two poor people that came together and right before Pesach. And they decided that one Jewish guy and one non-Jewish guy tells his non-Jewish, uh, his Gentile, Schnur friend, he says, Pesach, everybody invites people to the home. This is the time you're going to get a good meal. Let's go. Let's go for it. But the problem was that the Gentile got invited to one home. The Jew got invited to another home. The Gentile never heard of a Seder before. So he comes into the Seder. And first he's told to wash his hands. And he has wine. He says, wow, that's nice. We start the meal with some wine. But then he's given a piece of bread. And they tell him, break it. Put it aside. We can't have it. He says, we're about to eat. He couldn't have it. Then they give him a little the vegetable dip in salt water. He says, okay, fine. Maybe customs, appetizers, I'll take it. Finally, he sits through this long reading of the Agadah. He's starving, he's famishing. He's saying, when did this guy rip me off? I want to get some bread. I want to get something to eat. They give him the matzah. He starts biting on this cardboard. He says, okay, I'll take the cardboard. But where's my meal? After they give him all the cardboard, they give him the bitter herbs. And he eats this and he throws it on the floor, runs out of the house, goes to meet his friends and you framed him, you set me up, you gave me a place that they're, what are they serving, what meal, what happiness, what joy. All I sat there to sit through this reading and all I ate was a little herbs, they burnt out of my intestines, who knows what I had there. Finally the Jew comes over to him and tells him, if you just would have waited just one more minute, you would have had this beautiful meal. The same idea is also, we're sitting in a time in exile. God is telling Moses, it looks bad and terrible, just wait one more minute and you'll see the beautiful meal. We need to be able to get through the mud of the bitter times to be able to get to the enjoyment. But the Rebbe told us already that the bitter times we had enough. We already suffered enough. We already had this refinement we did. All the refinement was done. As in the words of the previous Rebbe, we already refined even the buttons on the jacket are already glowing. We are ready for the time of the coming of Mashiach. The exile is dark and bleak enough. We are now ready to finally have the coming of Mashiach. Just like a field. In order to get beautiful produce, you can't let it stay beautiful. You have to plow it. You have to plow it again. You have to make sure the seedlings are down in the ground after rot. So too. In order for us to truly appreciate the spirituality in life, in order for us to truly appreciate not only spiritual, but any gift in life, we have to go through the plowing, the sowing, and the kneading, and, and all the different steps until we have a beautiful piece of bread. So too, in every part of our life, there's all these different steps until we can come to enjoy the beautiful piece of bread. But let's not lose focus and say, why? I don't want to deal with the plowing. I don't want to do with the sowing. I just want the piece of bread. You can't get the piece of bread unless you have all those steps for it. In this exile, we already did all those steps. We're now ripe and ready for the coming of Moshiach, maybe now. Amen. Amen.